Hey, I'm really excited to get to talk to you. A lot of you are here on Sunday mornings because you're part of High Point Church. I'm really excited to talk to those of you who are in other sub-flocks of the Church of Jesus Christ here in Madison. Um, uh, I, and I really, I really want to honor the pastors that were willing to put their names on this conference with us, church, churches like City Church and Gateway. And is, what's the metro now? Is it the well? I can't remember the new name. So if you're, if you're not, if you don't worship on Sunday mornings at High Point, would you like just raise your hand so we can see like who is here from other churches? Yeah, yeah. Thank you guys for coming. I appreciate your interest. I'm so glad you're here. And I also really appreciate the humility and confidence of your pastors to encourage you to come to a church where they're, they're not the main speaker every, for everything. You know what I mean? Um, it's great to see that camaraderie. And among, among ministers um, in the city of Madison, we've seen increasing camaraderie in working together. And one of the things I've been really excited about over the last year is I'm seeing that with some of the, with the counselors and people in mental health that are in the churches and believe in and worship Jesus who are like getting to know each other better and working together more. And so I, I really think that we're, we're starting something here. So I want to I dive right in. What we're going to talk about tonight is I want to focus on what I just want to call a wider view of biblical healing. That in the Bible, there are lots of ways God talks about healing us. And I'm going to just talk about seven tonight, and, and my, my goal is very straightforward. Um, one, I want every person to know all of the healing available to them by the hand of God, okay? Secondly, I want churches to stop dividing over our understanding of how God heals, Amen. okay? Um, because a lot, a lot of our churches, we focus on one a lot— and then we kind of sub-focus on maybe one of the others, and then we even don't like people who focus on some of the others, and they're all right in Scripture, and they're all significant in how God heals people. And I think that the churches in Madison, the people who believe in Jesus, could be united over things, the very things that some sometimes divide us. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a third reason, which I can't think of right now because I'm 45. Okay, so— <laughs> um, Part of the attitude of this conference and the Oaks Ministry Collaborative, which, which we're starting and hoping to be a regional ministry that includes lots of churches, um, is that we believe in a holistic view of biblical healing. Now, I hate being the person who gives this talk because I hate the word holistic. One is it's spelled wrong, and I can't go into the 1920s through 1930s whole deal about the two different spellings and why they're different. But my experience is when people use this word over the course of my adult life, usually what they mean is either A, um, we're going to just make whatever we're doing more expensive but not work any better. Two, um, the way you do it right now doesn't include what I'm good at and what I get paid for, and you need to include it, right? And, or third, um, if you knew the definition people were using for holistic, you wouldn't like it. Like, if you've ever looked into, like, the definition of what makes food organic or coffee fair trade, it's not inspiring, okay? It doesn't sound fair, and it doesn't sound organic, okay? And you're like, well, this definition stinks, right? So I, I normally just don't like talking about this. But it's also true that there's an irreducible complexity for things that work. So the classic example is the, the old mousetrap that has seven parts, and there is, there is not a six-part version of it. If you, if you have all seven parts, you can catch 100,000 mice. If you have six parts, you catch zero mice. So what you have to ask about anything that's important is, what, it, what is too simple? What is what you, you want to simplify things so that people can interact with it? Because we're, we're, we're all simpler and less sophisticated than we think we are. You know what I mean? We need things to be simplified. But what's too simple? What's too narrow, especially when you worship and follow an infinitely complex God? Right? And so tonight, I want to give you seven things. Is that the most simple it can be? I don't know. Is, does it have to be even more, a little bit more complicated than this? I'm not sure. Okay? But this is my shot at something like holistic. Okay? But before I dive in, 
I want to be really clear about some things from a Christian perspective, right? The first is, is that the goal of Christian healing is not just function, right? A lot of counselors, like in their work, you come to them because your life isn't working. And their job, mercifully, is to like get you to where your life is functioning. And then you don't have to go to the counselor anymore. And your health insurance doesn't want to pay for it anymore because your life is working, okay? The goal is not perfection. The goal is your life works. You're not getting a divorce. You can go to work. You can overcome your OCD, right? The Christian goal is everything we were made to be in Christ Jesus, made in the image of God, formed for him forever, right? In, in real human flourishing. And the, the Greek New Testament word for this is teleos, which means something like perfect, mature, complete. It doesn't mean perfect like the greatest possible thing you could imagine. If I went to a grocery store and I got an apple, and it was like not perfectly round, but there were no holes in it. It was, it's just what an apple is supposed to be. It would be a teleos, mature, perfect apple. Does that make sense? That completeness or fullness is what God wants us to pursue in our healing, right? And once you recognize that, you're like, okay, healing is going to have to be a process. And it is. Now listen, God does miraculous things sometimes, or there are moments where big changes happen right? So the way Jill and I sometimes say is healing is a punctuated process. It's a process. You're going to be there your whole life. When I go to elder meetings, we have people from their 40s to their 80s, and we talk about what God is working on in us for our healing and maturity, right? Now, secondly, I think we need to be clear about what a human being is. Um, as, as, as my adult life has gone on, where we were dealing with Christian thought has changed, when I was in my 20s, the concept of sin was embattled. Is there something that's clearly wrong? Like, what counts as sin? And why is God upset about it? And so on, right? It's, we're way past that, y'all. Okay? We're now to the point where the question is, what is a human? What is a man and a woman? What does it mean to be a human being? Is humanity something to be transcended or something to be embraced? If God does everything God wants to do in us, will we still be human beings? Should we try to be more than this? Should we try to upload our brains into things? Should I want a robotic arm? Right? And so I want to give you what I can, I hope is like a pretty biblical definition, right? And that is this. A human being is a divine image-bearing, embodied and embedded, self-conscious person. Capacious means big, wide. That is capacious morally, and therefore responsible, in moral significance, purpose, and dignity, who has an everlasting destiny. That is what a human person is. That's where, that's where Christians start. Do you understand? And I'm not going to argue for that tonight. That's not what this talk is about. But I want you to know where we're starting. So what I want to talk about is seven parts in a holistic Christian or humane approach to healing. Now you might say, Nick, why do you put Christian and humane together? Like, we're Christians, but lots of people aren't. Like, you're kind of using the synonyms. I am. And here's why. And this may sound bombastic if you're here and you're not a believer. Christianity is in fact true. It gives us an accurate view of what human beings actually are. And therefore, to do what God says is to treat humans as human beings. And to not do what God says is to treat human beings as something other than what they are. That is to treat them inhumanely. Therefore, Christian understanding, that is, hearing what God has spoken and shown about who we are and what we should do with each other, is to treat people like human beings. To not do so is to treat them inhumanly. That is the Christian claim. Now, let's go through them. The first is natural healing that is built into creation. Humans have natural innate capacities to heal physically and neurologically. 
Disagreement here usually lies in the approach to treatment, not of the good of pursuing natural healing. The human body, like, I, if I've always wanted to be Wolverine from the X-Men, okay? I've wanted to be able to, like, ride a motorcycle, and if I, like, crash, I just, like, I'll, like, get put back together. I want to be able to, like, I would love to be him, even without the blades. It would be awesome. And the thing is, here's the thing. You all, I already am. Like, I am already this amazing physiological, biological creature that I cut myself, I hurt myself all the time, and I heal. It is unbelievable the capacity human beings have to heal. The reason we have surgeries is because after you cut on people and sew them and all that kind of stuff, their body then heals around the surgery, which is incredible, right? In trauma therapy now, there are mechanisms people are using where like locking a memory with a spot you're looking, your brain has the ability to like take this thought and this like trauma that's harmed you for years and like process it, put it in a new place, and you feel like remarkably better. You feel terrible for a few hours, but then you start feeling better. You know, like it's, just, it's unbelievable the healing potential the human body has. We find out that some of those complicated things we're trying to heal. The human person is actually not just capable of being broken but actually capable of healing in incredible ways. And what this means is that it also means that all kinds of vocations that we engage in that seek to grasp and enhance physical health and healing along the means of creation are goods. And that's what most people are doing day in and day out, right? We go to work. And so like being involved in things like nutrition and health and living, that includes being like a grocer, You're involved in human healing. You're giving people fuel that their bodies use to replace millions of cells every day, to heal, because God has given a creational capacity to do it. But that also means like medicine. Everybody who's in medicine, right? Everybody who's in things like physical therapy and so on. And also this is where counselors and therapists would fit in. How do I use like natural realities about the human body and human psyche to help somebody heal in their personhood? Like, how do I do that? How, what are the best ways to do that? How do we investigate that? And how does their neurology and those sorts of things, how do they feed into it? And how can I be helpful, right? And also remember that the, the first mandate of the Bible is not to go preach Jesus to people, right? We had to fall before that was even relevant. The first mandate of the Bible is God created a creation and sent us into it. And he said, you go and figure out how to take dominion over this thing I made. Work six days and rest one. And figure it out. That means the scientific enterprise is a God-given, God-created enterprise that he created us as image bearers capable of doing, which means science is inherently good and part of what we're called to be and do, right? And so all of these things are in the Bible, right? Like caring about God's dynamic with our physical nutrition and capacity is like the Sabbath is basically like, look, you need to rest and you need to let everybody else rest because because you're an embodied and embedded creature right? Same thing with balm. Like, one of the gifts, in the, if you look at the, New Te- the Old Testament, like, the, one of the gifts people tried to afford so they could have it themselves and give to others was medicine that was available, that people had discovered through the kinds of science that was available at the time, right? Now, let's, we gotta keep moving. The second is miraculous healing and spiritual deliverance. Miraculous healing and spiritual deliverance. There are 72 accounts of healings or exorcisms in the ministry of Jesus. John states that this is only a small selection of the total that Jesus did. The New Testament teaches that miraculous healing and exorcisms will continue to be done by Christ's people with spiritual authority and gifts until his return. That's what it teaches. Now, some people have said, yes, but Nick, Jesus, Jesus heals people's physical maladies, and then he casts out demons. And a lot of times he casts out demons. The, the thing that's 
that is shown about the person's behavior looks like mental illness. So isn't it that Jesus like heals physical maladies and mental illness? He's a healer. And the answer is no. Okay, and here's why. One of the ways you know is because Jesus talks about the existence of devils or demons, that is, intelligent spiritual creatures that are against God and seek to bring anything but healing to his creation in places where he's not doing exorcisms. He just says, there's a Satan. There are devils. They are real. I believe in them. And so he asserts that he literally actually believes that there are spiritual intelligences that interact with our world that really exist. Okay, this, the second thing to think about this is, is that devils and demons are spiritual persons opposed to health and salvation. When we think about healing and holistic biblical healing, you've got to start asking, what are the harms and who are the harmers? Right? The Apostle Paul explicitly says to Ephesians, listen, your battle is not—that is, your fight against the harmers. Who are the harmers? Right? He doesn't say the pagans or the secularists. He says— there are principalities and powers that you are fighting against. He means, spiritually speaking, he's referring to devils, right? As the primary personal opponent, rather than our enemies or our neighbors. The third thing is, is that devils and demons can cause problems and make problems worse. So there's situations where, like, something might be caused by a certain kind of demonic activity, but also, like, devils just make everything worse. They make your marriage worse. They can make all kinds of, they're trying to make everything worse. And so something might not be demonic, Biblically speaking, they're, they're kind of involved in everything bad, right? And so being aware, first Peter says, look, you need to be aware because the devil, which is a metonymy for all devils, are like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. You've got to be aware and know how to resist. The fourth is, is that demons tend to influence cognition more than physiology. So if you just read the Gospels, you might think that demons are going around possessing people and making people sick, okay? Once you get into the epistles— you're not looking at how the exorcisms are a sign for the work of Christ, but you're talking about the operation of the demonic spirit, right? And in those cases, the apostles focus more on the effects of temptation on our cognition, how we think about things, how we think about ourselves, how do we think about the hurts in our lives, how do we think about how our parents treated us, how we can, how can we think about them in a more victimized way, how can we think of them in a more self-justifying way, how can we think of them as opposed to in a more gracious, forgiving, God-centered now, you might be like, Nick, I don't like all this talk about these devil stuff. You guys sound like fundamentalists or something. Okay, here's what I want to say about some of my experiences as a pastor for 20 years. The first is, is that non-psychosomatic healings happen, though they're relatively rare in my experience, okay? Because sometimes people will say, well, Nick, it, like, in some ways, it might just be a good thing that, like, some people might have, like, because, like, you know, if ever, like, everybody's supposed to have read The Body Keeps the Score now. They know that, like, just as, like, like, psychologically, we can, like, heal ourselves, kind of. Maybe, like, you, you can harm yourself psychologically. So maybe, like, the good feeling in church, and, like, some of you pray for somebody, and you, like, help them, like, mentally get over, like, stress they're creating in their own body, and then they feel better. Maybe, like, it's healing, but it's, like, healing caused psychosomatically. Okay. Great! Great! That'd be fantastic! And I'm sure some of the healing that comes in churches from people actually loving each other enough to pray for and care and bear burdens with one another does create healing that's like mentally psychosomatic, at least in part. Because remember, go back to point number one. God has made us able for that to happen. It is spiritual and physiological medicine to care for someone emotionally and spiritually. It's healing. But also, here's the thing. I've seen healings that just, they're not psychosomatic. I remember out those doors, a family of the cousin girls carrying their two-year-old daughter, Rachel, out those doors. She was going to have to have her, cut, her skull cut open because her brain was growing faster than her skull. 
She's two years old, didn't really speak a lot of good English yet. And they're walking out, and I just was like, they were like, yeah, we're going to surgery. We got surgery on Tuesday. So I just put my hand on Rachel. Not a lot of faith. I just said, God, please heal little Rachel. I hate this. Amen. Right? And they're like, amen. And they just left. And then they called me like two days later. So Rachel's better. We went to the doctor, and her skull and brain are fine. She's great. She's like eight or ten now and doing fine. Um, uh, there's a woman who I think is here tonight who we went, we had a, we talked about healing a little bit on a retreat this, this fall. And l- listen, you got to understand, I am the worst mystic in the world. Okay. I'm horrible at praying. I have like ADD narcolepsy. Like I don't, I don't, like, I don't believe in anything. I like, I, like I have the heart of this like torrid atheist, right? And like, I'm a believer and it's like really hard to do this stuff. And so like, this is hard for me. Okay. And like every time I'm like, I want to hear from God, I'm like, I don't know what that is. It sounds like the ceiling fan. Like I'm just, I'm not, I'm not good at being like mystical or charismatic like that, right? So, but like, but it's in the Bible. Like you read this Bible and God does things in time and space to help people, okay? And he, he does it. And so I'm like, we got to do it. You got to, you got to, like, maybe you don't see anything, but you got to jump, you know? And so we, we had this speaker come in that I was not comfortable with, and he talked about healing and said some things I was not comfortable with. And then we prayed for healing. And the person I'm, I prayed for was like, yeah, I'm having this pain in my foot. It's really painful. And so the, the Noxes and I prayed for this woman, and she was like, walked around. She's like, you know, I think it feels better. And I was like, this is so stupid. Like, <laughs> This is like how, like, you're like, who has back pain? You know, like, somebody's like, I do. And you're like, give them an Advil. Okay, we're going to pray. And then they're like, who feels 20% better? I do. Like, I'm, I like, it's like, you know, I don't know if you've been healing me. like, I'm not saying that's a bad way to do it. I, it, it. Maybe it's a way to exert faith, right? So I'm not judging it, but it's like, I don't emotionally connect with it. Let's just say that, okay? But like, I, call, we, I, sent, I sent a text to the lady whose foot, and it had been hurting for months. I was like, are you, are you, how's your foot feel? Because like, it's, it's like five months, four months later. She's like, it's great. I was like, awesome. <laughs> right, there's, an, there's another lady here who was training for a marathon. She had, a, had adult asthma, had it most, most of it all of her adult life, and she would use her inhaler three times every time she'd go for a run, before, during, and after. And so one of the guys who came to this, um, he was like, I'm going to pray for people to be healed. This sounds like I'm going to do it. So next small group, they, she's like, well, look, I got asthma. You can pray for me to be healed if you want to practice. And he's like, okay. So, so like they pray for her. And like about January, three months later, apparently, she's like, where's my inhaler? I think I lost it. She didn't realize for three months she had not been using her inhaler at all. Because it turns out, you re- remember, you have an inhaler when you need it, I guess, right? And she's just like, where the heck is my inhaler? I don't even know what the—she just hasn't used it. Like she's like better— She's running marathons. It's like we have st- stress tested the healing. You know what I mean? So, so does it happen every time I pray for somebody? No. In fact, one of the most humiliating experiences of my life was going as a missionary to India and preaching in this church and having people come up for, pray, for prayer. I prayed for 140 people after this meeting. All, most of them had come up because they were dying of AIDS. And I put my hands on every single one of them, and I asked God to physically and miraculously heal every single person. As far as I know— not a single person was healed. And I felt terrible. I feel terrible right now telling you. But they happen. Uh, the second is, is that modern exorcists utilize medical, mental health professionals first in exorcism, but usually not in deliverance. Meaning, 
you might be like, okay, Nick, if you believe in this exorcism stuff, then like, you're going to like take a 16-year-old kid who has literally schizophrenia, and you're going to like pray the devil out of him and not get on the medication that he needs, okay? That was probably, I mean, okay, that's true at some churches literally now, but, vi- but way fewer than it was. And listen, Psychology wasn't so hot in the 70s and 80s when some of this stuff was happening either. Okay, let's, let, let's like not throw stones at our glass houses here and realize we're all learning stuff about people who are struggling profoundly, okay? And I've talked to counselors. They're like, listen, there are people who have very profound mental health problems, and I've tried every antipsychotic. I've tried every treatment. I've tried everything, and they are not getting better. And I know in some of those cases, they have the humility to call in a pastor who knew about this stuff, and they did an exorcism, and that person got a lot better. Now, in many cases, whilst also taking medications. So we'll put that in our paper smoke it tomorrow. Okay, third is because of these realities, there's hyper-spiritualism around these things. Like, we're gonna pray for everybody all the time. Healing is everything. Like, like everything has to be this idiom of, like, healing, power, God speaking, right? Which is, right, it's important. But is it the main idiom of Christian ministry? No. But is, if it's absent, is that a problem? Well, yeah, right? But also there's a lot of anti-spiritual cynicism that's also really harmful too. And not just from our secular friends that we're working with, like maybe mental health professionals, but also in churches. How many churches don't expect to hear anything from God? How many churches don't pray for the sick? Listen, the Bible explicitly says, if you're an elder or leader in church, it explicitly says, you're supposed to pray for sick people. And listen, if you're a Christian and you are sick, it says in the Bible, you are supposed to go to the elders and present yourself to be prayed for for healing. That's your job. And then it says right after that, that a lot of stuff we don't have because we don't ask. And when we ask, we do it because we just want to spend it on ourselves. Okay, so you might ask this question, Nick, if God has the power to heal demonic possession, mental illness, and physical disease, then why doesn't he or didn't he or doesn't he just heal everyone? And the answer is, well, there's a number of answers in Christian spirituality over the last 2,000 years. One is, is that suffering can be really redemptive. And we're all going to suffer and die. God saves us through the grave, not away from it. So we're all going to pass through suffering. The second is, is that healing can be damning. You remember the 10 lepers? They all get healed. Only one even thanks the person who healed them. Everybody else just goes about their business. Same thing with a guy who's, who's paralyzed for 38 years in John 5. 38 years. 38 eight years. Jesus raises him up, and all of a sudden he can walk. And then Jesus finds him uh, a few hours later, a little bit later, and he goes, listen, you need to stop sinning, or something bad is going to happen to you. To which some New Testament scholars have suspected that the man had been paralyzed because he had syphilis from going to prostitutes, and had already done so again since he had gotten the use of his legs and lower body back. Now, that is speculation. But it's based on the fact that Jesus clearly believes that the man had sinned and sinned seriously in a way that could really harm him worse than paralysis if he continued with it, right? And the third, and in some ways most important, is is that healings done by Jesus in the New Testament and by us are signs. And the question is a sign for what, right? The end of Mark says this. Jesus said to them, Go to all the, world and all the world and preach the gospel, the good news of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs, the signs of what? What he just said, will accompany those who believe. In my name, 
They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. Starts with exorcisms, ends with healing, other miraculous things. It is connected to Christ's name. That does not mean that the name Jesus is a magic incantation that we cast spells with. What it means is Jesus is king, and under his divine authority, we have the authority to do his works, including healing, exorcism, and some other things, right? That he will do in our midst. That is, healing, exorcism, and other miracles are a sign of salvation. Salvation, coming to Christ, belonging to Jesus, being saved, being born again, becoming a new creation in Christ. There's a lot of ways the New Testament talks about it is the bones of human healing. It is the structure. It is the foundation. It is the, it is the thing that makes everything else work. It is the golden habit. It is the, it is the thing that tells us how to engage with all the others. And it is the main part of salvation. And you may be like, well, but Nick, isn't, isn't salvation about like being forgiven of our sins and like not having to go to hell? It's like a legal—well, sort of. But see, if you just think about the legal dynamic— just add the word incarceration to it. It's freedom from divine incarceration and punishment. Do you see how that's a, that's a social healing? What is forgiveness? It's the healing of a relationship. Virtually everything in salvation is and can easily be like reordered in just how you talk about it without doing any damage to it as a kind of healing. So salvation is this, the spiritual gift of new life, forgiveness, acceptance, freedom, divine presence, and power, identity, and spiritual authority that comes from Christ and is both an event, saving faith, punctuated, and a process. It, there's an order to salvation, right? Now, I mean, think about it, just think about it this way. And I'm not—when I say these things right now, I'm not trying to get you to contemplate each of these 11 things. I'm hitting you intentionally with a bunch of things so you see how much this is the case in how the Bible talks about salvation. Salvation is talked about as a new birth or being born again, coming into new life, right? As a new creation, a new formation. You tell me if you think these are healing pictures. A resurrection from the dead, divine forgiveness, an adoption into a new family of somebody who had no parents, no one to care for them, right? To be given a heart of flesh, from a heart of stone. Not only is that like a healing metaphor, like you can't actually live with a stone heart, but it's a emotional, right? It's an emo a, a metaphor for emotional life and healing, that our heart was hardened, and now it can actually feel what it's meant to feel. It can do what it was meant to do. Inclusion from isolation, liberation from oppression. The whole Exodus story is a metaphor of salvation, right? Because so liberation from oppression, legal justification from divine incarceration, freedom from addiction and enslavement, right? Sin is portrayed as a kind of addiction and enslavement in the Bible to be freed from the substance abuse of evil, to be facing and—to face and be able to overcome shame and the capacity to suffer with resilience. All of these are things that doctors and mental health professionals are trying to help us with, right? In the—in sort of like the natural, physical nature of our lives. And yet all of these things function in the holistic dynamic of Christian salvation, of what it means to belong to Christ, what it means to be growing in and knowing Christ. The fourth thing is spirituality and discipleship. Spirituality and discipleship are human engagements with the gifts of God in salvation. Spirituality tends to focus on receiving the work of this Holy Spirit internally, often emotionally, in how we relate to it. And then discipleship 
on instruction and discipline or the acts of following Jesus and reordering our lives structurally around it. They emphasize both agency and grace. That is, we're doing stuff, and God is freely giving us the gift of helping us do it, right? They include formational practices, rules of life, rituals, and other means that apply divine grace to the organism pathways and receptivity of what we are as embodied and embedded human beings. Does that make sense? Now, um, one way to like talk about this in Christian and religious language would be to say this, that um, Christian spirituality or discipleship is the way we learn to combat sin, the world, demonic influence, and indwelling sin, and to be strengthened by the grace, hope, and love of knowing God by keeping in step with and knowing God and his spirit, right? Now, if you were to like, say, what if we clinicalize this so we could see the relationship between how spirituality and discipleship heals us relative to categories we often use in things like mental health or whether or not your life is working well. It'd be something like this. To take agency in escaping the perpetrator-victim cycle, that is sin, right? We hurt people and get hurt by people, and we get caught up in that. And through discipleship, God forgives us. We learn how to forgive others. In forgiving others, rather than taking our pint of flesh, right, and staying in that cycle of hurting and being hurt, we step back in forgiveness. I'm not going to continue the cycle, but I'm going to stand under Christ in the person of his spirit, and I'm going to re-engage with the people in that cycle as a, heal, as a healer-redeemer. I'm going to seek to be a healer and help people be healers and redeemers. And that dynamic, learning how to love, is what we are putting on and learning how to do and, and building into our lives and learning how to be. And that's really difficult. If you read 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and following, there's this list of virtues, and the last one is love. Love is the hardest thing in the world to do. Because pulling ourselves out of the perpetrator's, the harm, perpetration cycle of sin, hurting each other and sinning against each other, not forgiving each other and gossiping about each other, to really become a person who is a healer and a redeemer, to, to live that, even when people are spitting in your face and treating you however they feel like, to do the right thing just because it pleases God and because you believe it's right and because you believe it's for the good of your enemy. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. That's what love really is. And without spirituality and discipleship, God says that's not possible. We have to go through the process. It's punctuated. It's a punctuated process. The Spirit does things. Moment, there are special moments, but it's a process. And we have to be in that process. Right? Now, you, now, here's the thing. Individual and corporate, corporate spirituality and discipleship. Um, we normally get hurt. We receive harm in our brokenness. Usually happens in relationships. Family relationships, friend relationships, relationships we're stuck into, like we're thrown into school with other kids and they hurt us, you know? And um, the, re the reality about human beings, because we, d we imitate people so much, because we, we, we're so connected with each other in our capacity to see and interact— we normally heal and get formed in relationships too. And that's why the fifth thing, fifth thing is the church is one of God's main irreducible parts of human healing. If you want to receive God's healing, but you don't want to be part of the church, you don't want God's healing. I hate—some reason I hate to tell you that because it is hard sometimes to engage with the other people in church because they're all harmers and perpetrators too. We are all part of—we're um, all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And in that, we are sons and daughters of the image of God. And in it, sadly, we are sons and daughters of the fall. And so the church can be a hard place. The church, but the church is God's ecosystem for healing. It's shared faith, deep relationships, formational rituals. It's shepherding leaders, make it a spiritual family in which, therefore, because it's a family, harm can be dramatically worsened, but also we can be profoundly healed. 
The church can be as formational as the human family, the institution of formation and life or all of our primordial harms. And just like a family can be the thing that is so dysfunctional it messes us up for a long time, it can also be the beautiful thing that forms us to live in the world as redemptive creatures. Does that make sense? And the church is God's gift to give everyone, no matter what kind of family you were born into, to give everybody a chance at a second family. And that's why not only you have to be part of the church, you have to fight for her health and heart. You have to participate in your church being great. And it doesn't have to be big. You don't have to have a big budget. I mean, it's emotional health. It's spiritual health. That it really does love people in both grace and truth. We've got to keep moving here. Okay. I'm going to skip that one. Sorry. The sixth is resurrection and glorification. There is healing that is beyond achievement in this life. There is glory beyond shame, victory beyond defeat, release beyond chronic pain, cure beyond the incurable, resurrection beyond death, and hope empowers agency and struggle. There is nothing that will be for nothing. That promise is not only absolute in itself, because all of us are facing the harm of death, and there is no solution for that, and counselors aren't supposed to come up with a solution for that, and doctors aren't supposed to come up with a solution for that. But God has come up with a solution for that. But it's not just that we have hope in death. It is what hope in death does for us now also. It produces gracious agency in us. Knowing that glorification is coming allows us to overcome nihilism and gloom. Because life is really hard. There are things you're going to have to try in discipleship and spirituality that, are, that seem utterly impossible. There are things that God is calling you to do that there is zero chance of success in you doing. I'm going to have a relationship with my mom. I'm going to be a light at work. I'm not going to participate in the stirring ring of gossip. I'm going to go into this profession that I think is really struggling right now to be truly healing because all the structures of economics that have affected it the way it has, but I'm going to do whatever good I can in it, no matter how hard it is. Right? It, it, see, it may seem impossible. Here's the thing. Knowing that there is a victory in the end that overlooks all that is done toward it, there is no action toward glorification that God does not see and reward and love and here's the thing. Most of the things that will happen in your healing, in your life, you have to start on a path with no earthly and worldly belief that you will be successful. Gloom and discouragement are so powerful. And the belief that God is going to do something that can really make it happen either in you or in a relationship or in another person seems crazy. It hasn't happened for 40 years. Why is this going to happen now? And yet, everything that you do that's right is worship. Everything that you do that's right says that you believe you want to be a citizen of that future place in which everybody is trustworthy, everybody is a healer, everybody has been redeemed, and you're going to behave like it now, and you're going to call people to that life, and you're going to live for that even if nobody lives for it, even if it costs you everything. I mean, what do you think the New Testament teaching on persecution is? It's that you live like a heavenly citizen, and people hate you more for it, right? And God's like, and the apostle says, the beauty of that is, you die and rise with Jesus. You are never closer to Jesus than when you are doing what is morally impossible. 
for the good of others, in love for always some kind of healing. And last is, and I know this doesn't sound sexy, but it's really important, is Christian truth. You might just call it Judeo-Christian theology if you're a secular person, right? It's like the stuff God tells us is the content we have to believe that guides us in healing. I know lots of people say, well, you know, like, I mean, it's proven clinically that prayer helps people, which is true. Or that being part of a religious community, like, correlates with higher levels of mental health. That's true. People who go to church twice a month have fewer divorces, fewer problems with their kids, blah, 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 right? So faith communities are positive towards healing. Okay, yes, that's true. I already knew that, but thank you, science, right? Like, that's not bad. But here's the thing. It's also false that faith communities are faith communities are faith communities. My Christian belief says that there are a series of things that God has spoken and shown about himself in the person of Jesus Christ in the scriptures that are true, and they are our guidance to and toward healing. And it's not just the Christian church that has this incredible inheritance in these things. It is our inheritance in Jesus Christ that has, that has brought what good the world does have in its values. And you may be like, well, I don't know if that's true. You know, Christians didn't in, like invent most good things. Well, you know, be careful because read some history. Yes, we did. Okay. Yes, we got them from the Jews. Okay. But we believe we're in continuity with the Jews. We're the ones who made it global. Okay. Jesus made it global. He was a Jew. We're following him. Okay. So we're really all, this is all just Judaism really from God's perspective, apparently. But if you look at the world, and I don't mean just Europe, I mean the entire world at the beginning of the Christian movement, the idea that the values of our society, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, whether you're a progressive or a conservative, whether, no matter where you are in most places in the world, if you have like these positive values of equality of rights and compassion, consent, enlightenment, liberty, science, and progress, that was not how the world operated at all before the Christian movement. The idea that people were equal was considered an idiotic fallacy to the ancient philosophers, even people as enlightened as Aristotle. What was obvious was that people were not equal, which look around, friends. That's a conclusion you can come to. The idea that we are all equal is something we believe because we were told that by God. That, at, that beneath all of our inequalities— is that we are all divine image bearers. We are morally capacious, embedded and embodied creatures that have the divine image. And because of that, no matter how much you are superior to me in all the things of this world, you are not in the basic reality of the dignity of my existence. And therefore, we are, in some meaningful sense, equal. And therefore, I deserve to be asked my consent for certain things I have rights to. And all of it flows out from that. And so, even the people who attack Christianity, highly secular people right here in Madison who are like, we don't like the church because it's like this and this and this, they are attacking us with our own values. They came from us. They, they, it is cultural appropriation. <laughs> it is all from the broken body of Christ and his display of what he'd already spoken and shown to the Jewish people, bringing to fulfillment in his messianic work to bring redemption to all people under the values that can really heal us if we don't allow our un-God-centered ideologies to take bits of them and pull them to extremes. Hyper-conservatism, hyper-progressivism, and so on. Right? In Christ— Things that almost seem 
contradictory, come together in living paradoxes so that we can both receive truth and grace at the same time. The God who can condemn us can also be the one who speaks life into us. The one who shames us in the face of our sin is the one who takes away our shame in the cross. And if you can't accept those paradoxes, you can't accept the difficulty and the reality of being a human being that bears the image of God and is fallen under sin and that requires a holistic redemption. Right? Christian theology also gives us the cancelable, cancelable heroes we need. Look, we suck. Right? Like, we, like most great stories in the history of the world are of like these people who are so great and it's mostly just great stuff said about them. Like we are the ones who are heroes, come from the midst of murder, incest, revenge, prostitution, violence, exploitation, cowardice, greed, and fear. That's our heroes. And listen, your church might be too cleaned up for real strugglers, but listen, the church isn't. Right? The communion of saints isn't. It also gives us metaphors that we need, right? Israel, the people of God. Like we are new Israel in the New Testament, right? We are, we are grafted in Israel. What does Israel mean? It, means? it means the deceiver, Jacob, who became the one who struggles with God. What does that mean? Like, why do we have to struggle? Can't we believe in Jesus and live in victory? And the answer is, yeah, you can, but you aren't. What you're really doing is wrestling with God. You wish things were different. You're frustrated at him. You don't know why he's doing things the way he does. And you're and like, you won't, but yet you won't let him go until he blesses you. You have faith. It's faith. You, you hope for salvation from him. You want something so important from him. And yet you're angry. You're trying to pin him. That is the universal human experience, even in faith. And, and God is saying, look, I'll give you the metaphor you need. And what happens to Jacob with that? He gets hurt. The angel touches him and it, he limps the rest of his life with the injury he gets. He gets broken by God. And he gives them the blessing. In your spiritual life, in your healing journey, both are going to happen to you. There are going to be things that are real wickedness in you, brokenness, stuff you can't hold on to, unforgiveness, revenge in your heart. And you're wrestling with it because you want to keep it, but you still want that blessing. And he's going to push you, and he's going to poke you, and it's going to break you. And it's for your good. And that same God who broke you is the one who will stand and bless you and give you a new name. Right? We need... We need these rich metaphors and stories. And the last thing I'll say about this is atonement. You see, there's, there's this idea in secularity that what we all need to get past is the most ancient part of superstition in a religion. Like, in, the Enlightenment thinkers thought, we'll keep the morality of Jesus, but what we're going to get rid of is all that blood in temple, all that cult, all the, like, dying animals and blood flowing. But here's the thing. There's no redemption for people without atonement. And I don't just mean that theologically. I do mean it theologically. It's also true psychologically. Like atonement is this means by which God both validates the victim and confronts the perpetrator at the same time. And here's the thing. As you'll learn if you go to Jill's session, we're both. We're all both. We're all victims. We're all perpetrators. And God, in order to reach us, had to create something that really deals with all of our perpetrated guilt. We are deserving of shame and lostness and brokenness. That is not disproportionate. That is what is necessary for him to be morally serious with the victim. And so he's morally serious with all the, all the, things, all the things in your identity at which you are a victim— God is so morally serious about what happened to you, about your victimization, so much so that he could not, would, would not consider 
the redemption of the wicked, those who perpetrated those sins without the death of the Son of God, his humiliation, his shame, his brokenness, to show the seriousness of what you suffered. But here's the problem. You're also a perpetrator. And so you don't just need your victimization to be taken seriously so that you can trust God. You need your perpetration to be paid so that you can know God. And in order for the victim and the perpetrator to be brought together, all of our perpetrating hearts have to be changed. Adam, who will speak tomorrow, the, the three like call signs of his church are grace, truth, and change. Right? The cross, if it affects you, changes you. The reason why the victim can forgive the perpetrator is because in the cross, everything that happens to the victim is acknowledged, truthfully acknowledged. I did that. Without that, for real communion and intimacy isn't really possible because the victim always thinks, well, you're going to do it again. You haven't even really acknowledged what you did. The first thing, that's why we have to learn to apologize. Because the, the thing that's necessary to restore any relationship is to acknowledge what you did. Only if you're conscious of what you did can you ever even hope to prevent it in the future. And something has to transform us. And the dying grace of God, the love and kindness that's meant to lead us towards repentance is transformative. So in our perpetrating selves, we are free knowing he loves and will redeem us to confess our real guilt. We don't have to hide it. Right? Because you're afraid. Well, if I confess it, then the hammer's going to come down on me. Well, the hammer came down on Jesus the Christ, so you can confess it. You can be honest with God, which means you can be honest with yourself and the people you've hurt. You can tell the truth. And in so doing, be free and free them and also begin to change. And in so doing, a beloved eternal community of people who've hurt each other and been hurt by each other can come together forever and can start to do so in the local church right now. So before we transition to begin to pursue this healing, I just want to say this. I've, I've taught, said seven things about biblical healing. But here's the thing. For Christians, for us, this is personal. These are all ways God is healing. The person of God to the person you are and the people around you. God is the one who gives all seven of these. He doesn't favor one or the other. Some are more basic to others. Salvation is more basic to all of them, right? But giving to the poor and needy is fundamental as well and a means by which God judges in Matthew 25. All of these are really important to him. And so we, all of us, are going to have weird winding paths through things because how we work through these seven things and how they affect us and how they change us and how they connect with our story and make a new story for us is going to be different. And our churches can be different. And some of our secondary passions under Jesus, the things Jesus makes us passionate about, are going to be different. And they'll follow along different ones of these lines. And we can still love each other and be in the same church with each other and help and support each other. And knowing that all these things are happening, people of different vocations, like counselors and psychotherapists and doctors and pastors and small group leaders, you can recognize that we really are supposed to all be on the same team. We don't have to fight each other and push each other out of our domains. There's going to be overlap, and that overlap can be good because God is working it all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please help us to open our hearts and minds to receive all that you have for us. Let there be nothing in your church 
and among us who sit here tonight that we don't have because we don't ask. Help us to believe that you're generous, that there's, there's no request we're going to make that you're going to be angry at us for making. You might say no, you might not give it to us, but there, there's no request that's going to make you mad. Every request we make of you, even just tonight, as we sing and as we pray for each other and as we pray for healing, as we come to you to worship you, we confess before you, we're going to assume that you are so generous, no matter what we ask, even if we ask for a jet, you're going to say, he or she thinks I'm generous. What a beautiful son or daughter. So that there would be nothing among the people in this room that we wouldn't have because we won't ask you for, especially in regards to what we know we need for healing. Help us to be one church and help us to work together in lots of different ways for the healing of many. We live in a—we just feel like we live in such a broken time. People are really, really hurting and being treated inhumanely. And we pray also, God, that you would bring a great revival if we would be willing to love people. Not just have church and even have prayer meetings, which are so good, but if we would actually love in the costly way you call us to and pray, that through that demonstration, through us calling on and trusting you, that you would bring a great revival. We pray these things in Jesus' name.